You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you haven't heard yet, uh, this is me telling you, you need to take a look at the new boots from Lacrosse, and they fall under the Navigator series. Now, what they've done is they've taken the best parts of a rubber boot and the best parts of your traditional hiking and hunting boot, and they've mashed them together to come up with this new line of boots from lacrosse and that is the navigator series now they have the women's wind rows they have the men's wind rows and then they have the atlas the atlas series within that as well so go to lacrossefootwear.com and check out this new line of boots that they have i've been using mine for a couple weeks now and i am very impressed with the the fit and the feel and i can't wait to get them in the woods this hunting season and uh, give them a trial run so lacrossefootwear.com check them out Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and this podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics. Go check out a pair of Vortex binoculars, and uh, they're just badass. Anyway, today, we're going to be talking with a good friend of mine and the co-host of the Hunting Gear podcast. His name is Bob Polanik, and the first part of this episode is a recap of Bob's elk hunt with his wife and a kind of solo mission whitetail hunt he took on eastern Nebraska on his way back to Michigan from his elk hunt. Uh, So we take about 20 minutes to recap those hunts, maybe a little longer. But then we get into the real meat and potatoes of this episode. And that is kind of, here's the idea. When I was a kid, I used to read these books. Yes, I could read back then too. And it, they were the choose your own adventure book. So you would read a paragraph and then at the end or the end of that chapter, uh, it would say, turn to page 10 for, I don't know, attacking the castle or turn to page 40 if you want to save the princess or whatever, you know, whatever the story was. And you could kind of choose your own adventure. And that had me thinking about whitetail strategy, right? So I thought... You know, there's a group of people out there that use trail cameras. There's a group of people out there who don't use trail cameras. There's a group of people out there who hunt public. There's a group of people out there who hunt private, uh, pressured versus unpressured. And 
the amount of acres that you have access to versus you know high and low and that had me thinking about breaking down strategy for every one of those scenarios right and kind of just walking through and talking through um, what you would do different or what we would do different let's say i'm a, I, I use trail cameras but how would i approach the season if i didn't use trail cameras right or i have access to a good chunk of land here in iowa now what would happen if i only had access to 40 acres and what if it was really highly pressured or what if it wasn't pressured at all right so uh, we kind of walk through all these different scenarios and talk about what we would do as, uh, you know, as a hunting strategy, uh, you know, put, put the pieces of the puzzle together. Now, the reason I wanted to do this and not have some guy on who slams a bunch of big deer every year is because I think what happens is we get lost in we get lost in the strategy, meaning you're so focused on the end result that no one really takes the time. Everybody wants to kill a big deer. But first off, you may not have any quote unquote big deer. You have to go after what is the best for you. And maybe you don't even give a shit about killing big deer and you just want to fill the freezer, right? There's a, there's a strategy for that as well. And uh, I, think, I think this podcast is just talking through and walking through and thinking about you know what your goal is and what you have access to uh it can can really can really help you in the long run determine you know what steps you need to take to have a, a, a quote-unquote successful season so that's what me and bob talk about today uh we gotta do a commercial now ripcord arrow rests go check out ripcord uh i'm just gonna tell a quick story here basically when you're up at uh 10, feet you're gasping for air and you're dragging your your equipment over deadfall and it's getting knocked around and like my bow I, I i beat the shit out of my bow i try my hardest to not have it affect you know like to to take care of it when i'm up doing these hunts but man dirt gets on it you know grime gets wet uh, you're bumping it against trees you're dropping it on the ground you're using it as a walking stick in some scenarios and I get back to camp and I shoot a couple arrows every night just to make sure everything's on and my arrow rest is always on. And that's a huge shout out to Ripcord for making one of, in my opinion, one of the best drop away rests on the market. And they have a variety of drop away rests that you can go check out. They have, um, like I said, I've been using uh, a Ripcord for, man, over 10 years now and they they make a very quality high quality product and it's run by good people who want to take care of you right they want to take care of the consumer because they know that once you're taken care of they have they have a repeat customer so a very high quality product that allows you to microtune uh, some of their uh, rests allow you to microtune uh, so you can just extreme accuracy and then um, just good customer service right and that's what we um, I talked about a couple weeks ago is just having really good customer service. So the next time you go set up your bow, ask your, ask the guy, or if you do it yourself, you really need to look into a ripcord ARS, man. They're, they're a badass rest and I highly recommend them. So, uh, ripcord long intro today. I apologize. Let's just get right into the rest of the podcast.
All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. Today, I am on the phone with my good friend Bob Polanik, who is also the co-host on the Hunting Gear podcast. And uh, so if you haven't listened to the Hunting Gear podcast, we're going to uh, strongly recommend you do that. It's probably one of the top five podcasts in the entire world, wouldn't you say? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah top, top three. Top, top three, three, even. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, I like yeah. that. Uh, so... We're going to do something crazy today, something that we've never really done here on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, and we're going to talk about this upcoming hunting season and the strategy that we should maybe be using um, from the point of view as a choose-your-own-adventure, right? Do you use trail cameras or do you not choose trail cameras? How does that strategy differ? Okay, if you don't do this and you're hunting public versus private or pressured versus unpressured, or are you uh, trying to fill the freezer as opposed to trying to shoot a buck and, and how the strategy kind of uh, differs through through all that. So that's what the main topic is going to be uh, about. You down? You down for that? Yes, sir. All right. So, but before... Uh, we get into that this soon-to-be debacle of an episode. Um, you just got back on a major like elk slash whitetail hunting trip, and uh, I want to know how that went for you, man. Uh, mixed, mixed results. I mean, it went good, but I I have two coolers in the back of my truck that don't have any meat in them, so not not that great. Um, uh, went elk hunting in Idaho with my wife. Um, that was September oh, 14th, September 14th to the 21st. And, uh, so we had a good eight days to hunt. Um, gosh, tons of action. Really? Weather. Yeah. Weather was great. Yeah. I, I've followed along on yours and, uh, I feel for you cause you kind of had what your last four days were pretty quiet. Yeah. Uh, one yeah. bugling bull and that was it for the, the five days that I was out there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. We, uh, so we got in there first day we did like a big loop up, uh, uh, we're just driving to the access point and we did a big loop, like up a ridge. I mean, we were in there, we were up at 4am up on top of the ridge way before we needed to. We actually sat for a half hour in the dark on the ridge and we were just listening, um, heard a couple bugles far off in the dark. Um, but yeah, the rest of that whole day was quiet. We did like a, an 11 mile loop, like all the way up a ridge around the backside of it and down another, you know, down another ridge. And, uh, that was a pretty brutal day one to not hear anything. So that was high country and by high country for, for me where I'm hunting at, that's like 9,000 feet. Yeah. Um, we dropped into some low country the next day, um, which is about 7,000 feet. And it was, it was, uh, we were on a bugling bull before it was even light out. And, uh, actually had that, that stock kind of, we probably got within 200 yards of him. He was, he was bugling and chuckling on his own, you know, every five minutes. And we were just closing the gap. And I mean, it's, it had only been light out for maybe 20 minutes as we we're working in on him. And right when, I try to get in close to him and then start calling 
And right when we got in close, I called a couple times, just cow called. He fired right back. You know, my wife's never elk hunted before, so it's like absolute crash course. Yeah. I'm like, I'm motioning herd, you know, keep going, keep going, keep moving. And uh, I'm I'm hanging back and just waiting for like the right time to, to cow call again. And uh, next thing I know, I hear a bunch of other cow calls and there was another group of hunters that were working up uh, from below him as well. And so we were kind of in, in between him and this other group of hunters. Um, and then they, they started bugling over him and they did that once or twice and he shot right up. So oh, that sucks. It's, yeah, it was a cool experience, you know, it, right away, you know, day two, we're into a, a bull that's bugling we had some other action and then, yeah, I think every day from there on out, uh, day three, day four, um, we had we had solid action uh, again on bugling bulls. I had I had got I had called a I don't know probably a a three hundred inch class bull into about a hundred yards. Same thing, working them, just getting into range. Um, he starts. My wife can see him. Um, at 100 yards, he starts working in our way, and same thing. Hunters come in, start over calling. He rounded up his cows and left. So, um, was there a way that you could have used those other hunters to your advantage? Like maybe flank one way real hard that he he might have been coming through to try to to try to use their yeah. distraction to your benefit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. After after the after day three that happened two days in a row, I, we kind of said, if this happens again, we're just going to stay quiet and, and do exactly what you just said. Try to flank them. We did that. We did that with one bull like later that day, I think. And we just couldn't catch up to them. They just, they just move so fast. They're like, yeah. you know, one step for them is like five for us. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then two steps for me is like, four for my wife. So, (laughs) so yeah. Uh, but no, we, uh, day four, it rained, it rained the night of day three and the morning of day four. And then the evening of day four, we got out in the rain start. It stopped raining right around five. We had got out about four o'clock. So we got wet a little bit, but, um, we, we were working down this Ridge and we found this area that was just absolutely shredded with rubs and you know, just stunk like elk and nothing was talking. I had let out a couple cow calls and it was super quiet. And I was like, ah, I was like, it's early enough in the, in the evening. I was like, let's see if I can get something going. And I just, I did a, a bugling sequence, a couple locators, and then like a, a kind of like a locator challenge bugle type deal and started raking a tree pretty hard. And all of a sudden, you know, probably from 500 yards away, a bull fires up. And then like two minutes later, he screams at like 200 yards and we're like, holy crap, like that worked. He's coming, he's coming in. So he was coming right in and he was bugling the whole way. And my wife was working down the ridge in front of me and the wind was kind of goofy. So I kind of told her, I motioned to her to kind of split off more to like the left of me. And, uh, if I wouldn't have changed her course of direction, she would have had probably a 30 yard shot at uh this big six by six just big chocolate rack ivory tips it was it was perfect so i screwed her up on that but you know it's day four of an eight-day hunt we're still just enjoying the encounters and having fun 
Yeah. Uh, day five was pretty quiet. Day six, we uh, in the morning again, bull firing fired up before it's even light out. So we're waiting for it to get light out and before we put a stock on them so we can come in, you know, get in there quietly on them. Um, ended up being a herd bull and we heard some other hunters start working on him and they were much closer. So we just bailed and we found one of his satellites running around and I called, uh, it was, it's a more open area. It was like open timber, not a lot of deadfall or anything. Yeah. And um, I called that bull into 70 yards twice, but he just couldn't. That's too far for her to shoot. So yeah. um, later that day, this is the real kicker. Later that day, we things kind of calmed down. It's like 1030, about 65 and sunny out. So we're like, all right, we're going to drop our packs. You know, I hadn't heard a bugle in two, three hours. Going to eat, eat some food and maybe take a nap or something like that. And uh the way that I, this is just a real quick side note. The way I killed my first bull was I was sleeping on the side of a meadow and I woke up, <laughs> I woke up to a bull walking through it and shot him. And that's how I killed my first bull. Um, so when I come, I came to this area where there's like three meadows that come together and in the middle of all of them, there's like a bunch of timber and a bunch of deadfall. So I'm walking around checking wind, looking at where like the openings are and like where like the game trails are and trying to figure out like a good spot to like, you know, set up for what potentially could be like a a four hour, just like lay down, nap, hang out spot. And I look back at my wife and she's kind of giving me that look of like, just pick a spot. It doesn't matter. You know, that look you can get from your significant other. Yeah. I get those every day. Right. 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 So, so in my head, I'm like, no, this does matter like a lot. And so we, we set up behind a big pine tree and there's like a, a meadow in front of us. Um, and the pine tree's blocking us probably about a, a meadow, the size of a football field, sit down, take her packs off, take, uh, my wife took her bino harness off and she keeps her rangefinder in her bino harness, which it's not a big deal, but that is a note that we're going to come to in a minute. Um, <laughs> 10 minutes goes by. And she goes, oh, my gosh, big bull, big bull, stands up, grabs her bow, tells me not to move. I'm laying there. She steps over me, steps out from behind this pine tree, comes to full draw, shoots, and I just hear nothing. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's a really big five-by-five bull, like really like light-colored rack. And, uh, she, because she didn't have her range finder, she guessed them at 50. He was at 40 and then her bottom pin is a 60 yard pin. And she put her bottom pin on him thinking it was her 50 yard pin. Oh no. Yeah. So she just sailed one right over his back. So, and I didn't have, I didn't have my read in my mouth in time to like, you know, call. Yeah, exactly. So pretty uh that was a very that was a very bad two or three hours of our lives together because yeah, yeah very disappointing well, especially I tell you what man at least you guys were on them yeah it was i mean all in all you know how they say you know 10 percent of our tree hunters fill their fill their tag or that's kind of just like the general success rate it's like you know we had multiple opportunities um got to interact with a lot of elk got to talk to them got to really dial in like how to talk to them and how to work them. And it, it's definitely something to build on 
moving forward. And then on top of that, she's hooked. She knows, you know, she knows more of like what to, how to prep for it, right. you know, what to pack for food and stuff like that. So what, what to expect really. Yeah. So, and then with her elk hunting, it just, it's just another week that, you know, I get to go spend a, a week in the, you know, the mountains hunting, hunting elk. And I've at the end of it, you know, it's not ideal to go hunting with your spouse all the time. Obviously we, most of us grew up hunting with, you know, our, our guy friends and stuff like that, or brothers or dads or whatever, you start getting your wife into it. And like, sometimes you got to hunt with your wife and not your friends and you got to make that compromise. Um, and, but typically I don't know about you, but you go on a week long hunting trip at some point in that hunting trip, you start feeling bad about being away from home. Well, the nice part about going with your wife that I finally figured out is that there is no guilt. You can just go. <laughs> I mean, you just go and have a blast in the mountains and, and you're having that experience with your your significant other. And that's a, that's that week. I don't I'm sure we'll go elk hunting together again at some point in our life, maybe next year. I don't know what. But no matter what, we're going to be able to look back on that week we had in the mountains together and and always remember that adventure that we went on and, and the views and the smells and you know the rubs and yeah it's it was just really cool to to show her all that so yeah absolutely man uh that's one thing that i like i'm kind of a solo hunter when it comes to like yeah this elk hunt i went on was with a group of guys but everywhere else i go hunting is mostly solo uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm just now getting what I, what I would say is getting into the Western style hunting where I'm going with one other person or a group of people, but it is kind of cool going with my wife because that way she can't bitch at me when I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yep. All right. So you end up, uh, you go to, you go to mm-hmm. Idaho, uh, had an awesome trip. Then your wife flies back, you drive back, you stop at your Nebraska farm to uh, do a little September whitetail hunting. Uh, real quick, tell us uh, what what happened there. Oh, man, just a, what a debacle. So the Missouri flooded, and this farm's right on the, the river. I've talked about it on the, uh, the uh, Hunting Gear podcast a couple times, but for anyone that's not following that, it's uh, this, this farm's right on the Missouri River. Missouri has flooded three times in six months. Yeah. Um, so the, the actual farm that I hunt, the timber and the fields and whatnot, that stays above water. It's the roads going in and out and the fields going in and out um, that are all flooded. So it's like an island. So like part of me was like, this could be really good. These deer could all be landlocked, you know, on this big island of timber. Yeah. Yeah. Between what I hunt and then everything else that was above water, we're talking probably a thousand acres. So, but still that's, I mean, out in Nebraska, I mean, it's nothing to see 30, 40 deer in one sit. So, um, you start isolating them all into like timber and I'm starting to think like, Hey, this could be really good. Got there. Um, the landowner, he's got a cabin on the, on the farm that he stays at. And, um, when the river floods, he travels a drainage canal, um, to like dry land, like out to his cabin. He'll take the drainage canal, uh, which normally this drainage canal is like 
has maybe four feet of water in it and it's about you know it's about six or seven feet down from the road well it's it's filled all the way up to the the road edge so he's got his boat sitting right there i helped him on tuesday get that thing all fired up he had to fix the bilge pump and change the oil and stuff like that we had to push it in um and he pushed it in with his truck like no trailer just backed into it <laughs> it's just dude, it was the most it was like one of the most hillbilly experiences of my entire life it's it's also it's not like it's a four winds or like a a, a nice pontoon boat it's like a welded together steel tub yeah. so like it's not yeah it's a, it's like a it's like a river dredging boat you know just to get from like barge to barge type deal yeah uh anyway we go down the canal you know there's asian carp jumping everywhere which i've never seen before um we get out to the missouri that's flood stage so that's pretty intimidating he he's driving we get up to his cabin the bank's all eroded away he's got he's got maybe three feet of yard to uh till his cabin goes in the river so He's kind of dealing with that. I go check trail cameras. It's about 90 degrees. And when I was done elk hunting the last couple of days, I was hunting in snow. So my body's just all out of whack. I'm getting annihilated by mosquitoes and walking through spider webs. And I get to my cameras and between three of them, there's like 5,000 photos. And there was one, one decent buck. Uh, he wasn't even, you know, that I don't know. He's probably a three and a half year old, but he he was on camera like two days before I checked him. So I was like, all right, that's enough to go on. That was Tuesday. It's 90 degrees hot. Wednesday, it's a high of 70. So big cold front comes through, big north wind. And uh, I I was like, all right, I'll just hunt. I'll hunt uh, Wednesday night and maybe, maybe Thursday morning. So I get to the boat Wednesday at about 4 p.m. and the back half of it is sunk. Motors underwater. And I'm just standing there just scratching my head like I just pissed away two or three days of, you know, vacation days to just sit out here and fart around and not do anything and not even get to hunt. And just kind of just swallowed that pill and uh, I called the farmer let him know or I called the landowner let him know that his boat's underwater he comes and he's like well he's like water's gone down enough I could probably get you out here in my truck and mind you he drives a like 1985 like old (laughs) Ford truck all the tires are bald and I'm just like I'm like have you have you have you driven through like water this deep before he's like yeah he's like about this deep he's like but it's gone down in my head, I'm like, the water only went down about six inches. Like, if, <laughs> like, if you weren't going to drive through it yesterday, like, why, why is it okay today? So I made a split-second decision. I was like, all right, whatever. What's the worst that can happen? I, I mean, I know what the worst can happen. I could drown and die, but right. uh, it's kind of a calculated risk. But anyway, I throw, I'm sent free, by the way. I'm sent free. I'm, like, kind of ready to go hunting. I jump in his truck and all I can smell is like gasoline and oil and he's just chief and cigs. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, this is just not exactly how I play the wind. It. Yeah. Right. right, right. <laughs> so, so we get to, we drive through about two and a half feet of water and we're going five miles an hour and he's just cracking up and I'm just kind of like, I mean, the water's to the floorboards. Yeah, and I could die today. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As far as you can see out each window, it's it's just water, too, because like the farm fields are just underwater. Right. So and, and the road cuts right in between them. So you can't even see the road. Just guessing where the road's at. So anyway, we made it back there. Um, I sat Wednesday night for for whatever reason. Deer were very skittish. I mean, deer that I know that there's no way they knew I was there. I mean, yeah. it was a it was a steady north wind, and they were to the north of me, you know, well upwind of me, and everything was just very skittish, running around. I don't know if the flood had them skittish, or or what Probably. the deal was, Probably. but um, it also went from pretty windy to just like dead call, you know, that too. So I don't know if that kind of had something to do with it, but saw I saw a really big spike, and then like four or five does, and. That was, I didn't hunt. Now you're back in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's the, that's that whole thing. Kind of a, a good experience, but, uh, you know, as far as the elk hunt goes, I honestly can't ask for much more. Had an opportunity. Uh, if I had my bow with me, I probably could have shot one at 70. Um, cannot ask for anything more than that. Um, and then as far as the whitetail hunting goes, all I can say is, I kind of helped solidify a relationship with the landowner by help, helping them out for a couple of days. Yeah. That's a so, big, that's a big thing. That's a yeah. big thing. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Sometimes you got to skip a couple of days of uh, hunting, make those people happy just to lock it down for the rest of your life, basically. Yeah. And it, it honestly, that's kind of him and I had some conversations and uh, he, he said that he really enjoys how serious we take it, um, that we hunt, you know, smart out there and we're, we're never, you know, abusing it, leaving trash or anything like that. So he, he definitely said he likes that we hunt there and he's got no problem with us hunting there for the foreseeable future. So that is a big plus, but, um, yeah. Yep. Well, there's a recap of your season thus far. Now I want to talk about the strategy kind of going into the upcoming season. And, uh, I have all these like, I'm really shitty. I do a real shitty job at preparing for every episode. Like I used to take a lot of notes, but then I found that when I would take notes, I would only look at the notes and like worry about the next question as opposed to what kind of was on the top of my head. So I don't take notes anymore, but I have this idea in my head of how I want this episode to go. And we kind of, we're going to be talking about strategy, but do you use this or do you use that or do you hunt pressured ground or do you hunt private ground and, uh, or, uh, unpressured ground? Because I think there's probably people out there who hunt private ground that gets hammered and public ground. Some guys out there who probably hunt some pretty low pressured public ground as well. So, um, I want to just kind of shoot from the hip on this episode. Well, like we always do, but I was thinking the other day, uh, how much, uh, of a role trail cameras play in my yearly, you know, whitetail strategy. And, you know, obviously I, I put my trail cameras out. I locate the deer during the summer. Uh, today, actually, if it stops raining, I'm going to go out and try to check, uh, check all my trail cameras and hang a, a couple more up. But at the same time, uh, I wonder how my hunting strategy would change if, I didn't have a hit list going into every season or I didn't know where the, the major activity was based off of trail cameras. And it kind of had me thinking of would my goal of shooting a 
four-year-old buck every year change because at that point you don't know what's in the woods right so my first question to you is do do you use trail cameras i do use trail cameras i have uh i use a lot of trail cameras i hunt uh nebraska that's like a 150 acre farm probably 50 of its timber 50 acres is timber and then uh in michigan where i hunt i've got three different properties uh two are public so i guess they're not mine oh i don't know i'm a public landowner after all mm-hmm. um and then one of them's private and that's a hundred acres in between those four properties. I've got about, I think 15, 15 or 17 cameras, something like that. Gotcha. So you yep. use, you use trail cameras a lot. Yes. Okay. So real quick, how do you use those trail cameras? Well, um, in two ways, uh, one for inventory two, uh, and this time of year, probably actually dating about three weeks ago, I moved them all. Um, for Michigan, uh, normally we can bait this year. We can't bait because kind of battling a, uh, chronic wasting disease issue. So I did put cameras on some old mineral sites. Um, but other than that, it kind of got me thinking more outside the box with, uh, mock scrapes and putting them on just like more like well-known travel corridors and stuff like that. And that has actually led to me looking a lot more at weather history and patterning deer and really trying to figure out how, how deer are moving, uh, within different pieces of property that I'm hunting. Some of it, some of it makes no sense. Some of it, there's no, there's just no correlation. Um, other stuff. Um, yeah, you can definitely see like, all right, he's betting to food, betting to food. You know, it's, it's pretty cut and dry what's going on there. Right. So, so, so you're basically, once the season starts, are you checking them on a regular basis to try to locate where, let's say uh, you, you check a trail camera, you see that there's a picture of a a shooter buck or what you deem a shooter um, on that trail camera. Does that say, okay, now it's time to move into this area? Yeah. So, so perfect example, um, I'll, and I'll break down. I'll break down what I basically just did in Nebraska, and then um, what I'm going to do here in Michigan because our season opens October 1st, and what is it, the 27th of September right now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so basically, real quick, Nebraska. I got there. I checked three different cameras that were very low impact. Just wanted to see what was around because of the flood, because of that whole, and that's a whole other set of issues going on there. That's not like a normal year. I just wanted to see what was around. We have we have history with a lot of bucks there. Um, a lot of times they don't come down to our our finger of the timber along the river until rut. It's kind of like more of a rut cruising. But I have gotten pictures uh, on cold fronts in August and September of bucks in the past year. So check cameras. Not a lot of the big boys. Zero of what I would call you know there was no four or five or six year olds around. So. That was pretty demoralizing. So that kind of is what I was like, I'll hunt one night, see what happens. And then, you know, got out of there, didn't waste any more time sitting there hunting. Uh, so that's kind of how I use that. It, it was a help of, it was a, it was a time management right. type of aid. Um, Michigan here, it's supposed to rain. So our season opens on Tuesday. It's supposed to rain Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning. I will most likely middle of the day, grab my bow 
just to have it with me. And in that rain, I will check my cameras and on all three different of these properties here in Michigan. And I will try to figure out a game plan for getting on an early season buck, basically on October, if the weather holds true, on October 3rd when the rain stops. Um, it's supposed to stop at like noon on, on the 3rd of October. And then high pressure is supposed to come in and probably hunt um, the 3rd and the 4th. And that's when uh, I'll use all my intel on like cameras that are on mock scrapes and runs and travel corridors. I'll look at all that information and I'll make a decision on what, which one of the three properties I want to put my time and effort on, into in the early season. Gotcha. So, gotcha. yeah. And I, I, I just like real quick, here's what I'll, how I use them. Summertime inventory. Uh, when I go back to move my trail cameras uh, today or tomorrow, I will be, uh, moving them off the mineral sites that I've established and to pinch points, fence crossings, uh, travel corridors, and uh, and scrapes if there's any big scrapes that have been kind of you know laid out. But the 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 uh, the way I use them in in the season is you know I'll hunt a couple days like well let's say when I go back to hunt my my big rut vacation right and i have a feeling that a majority of the people they may sprinkle in a couple weekend hunts but then they take their their vacation and the first day of my quote-unquote rutcation i i go in i pull all my cards i look through all my pictures and then if i find uh, a buck that i want to chase that's maybe been through in the last three days that's where i start and then I will I'll check trail cameras w- once every couple days uh, throughout that rutcation, depending on the impact that it takes to get to them, and you know what I'm seeing from the stand. Right? If I'm if I'm good movement in a certain area, I'm going to stay in that area. But if I need to move, I'll go check trail cameras. Or if I have a slow day, I'll go check trail cameras and then try to find something that's coming through at a different at a different time so the goal there then is to locate a deer and move in on them now what what if i told you i'm taking away your trail cameras this year how how does your strategy change at that point i well truthfully on my way home yesterday from my long drive from nebraska to michigan i had seven like i had 12 hours by myself, which is just way too much time. Um, and for just mentally driving, just boring. But, uh, I was listening to a podcast that you were actually on. Uh, it was Mark's podcast and I listened to Tony Peterson and Andy May and how their early season scouting basically led to them, uh, killing bucks on out of state hunts. And, uh, it just got me thinking that, yeah, I, if you took all my trail cameras away, I would, do long range observation for two days, like and then um, like scouting, and then um, move in if I found something. Right. So that's that's how I would approach it. I, you know, the more and more you listen and educate yourself from hunters that are just consistently successful every year, the more and more it, it's a reoccurring theme that long range observation and scouting pays huge dividends. Yeah. I, uh, I tend to agree on that. So does your 
does your uh, goal, let's say like whether in Michigan your goal, your goal is to kill a three-year-old, right? Yeah. Uh, what does that change? Not knowing if there's even any three-year-olds on the properties that you hunt, or do you feel confident because you've hunted uh, those farms for a while that at some point you're going to run into a three-year-old? Uh, I don't think it would change. If I'm going to set that goal for myself, uh, I wouldn't change it. Uh, I, I, I will say this. I've had a couple years recently that trail cameras have actually taken a lot of the thrill out of the Michigan bow season because I ran cameras all summer long on baited mineral sites and just didn't have any mature bucks. And even where I hunt, there's an APR, antler point, uh, restriction where it's got to be three on one side. And I had two out of three properties where there wasn't even a legal buck to shoot. So that was, like you didn't even, I didn't even want to hunt those properties. So if you take my cameras away and I don't know that, uh, are we saying you take my cameras away before like the uh, season? No, like, there's no such thing as trail cameras anymore. Like, all right, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Because now my, I have high hopes. No, I don't know that there's no bucks around. I'm just, yeah. I'm too, I'm too naive to, to know any better. And I'm sitting in my tree stand on October 1st, just happy as can be. Whereas two years ago, I was like, yeah, I'll go sit, shoot some does, but wasn't really thrilled that there wasn't any big bucks around. Always knowing in the back of my mind, anything can happen during the rut. Right. But, right. but early season, it was very demoralizing. Yeah. So I think that for me, if you were to take trail cameras out of, out of the equation for me, um, I would go to, I, I wouldn't be getting the intel, obviously, so I wouldn't be selecting an area based off of the, the trail camera pictures. I would then, at that point, go into some kind of rotation based off of terrain features. And I would, I would have more permanent stands or, or more stands hung before the season even started in historically good bedding areas and travel corridors and pinch points, right? And I would just cycle through them for the entire season until I basically got lucky and found where all the activity was, whether that's through, you know, scrapes and rubs or doing a little, uh, in-season scouting, so to speak, or, right. you know, like you said, some of these observation sets that are, are, are very important. But I don't know if I would be passing the number of deer that I pass in an entire year, right? So, I, you know, when a 140-inch eight-pointer walks by and he's a four-year-old, that's a, that's a pretty good deer. Uh, now, trail cameras tell me that there's other deer, you know, older age class and bigger antlers out there. Not that it necessarily matters much, but I'm, I don't know if I would pass that, that four-year-old, uh, if, if I didn't have trail cameras, I would probably shoot the first four-year-old that I had an encounter with regardless of the antler size. Right. Well, let me, let me throw a, what if scenario right back at you? Yeah. What, what if you went shed hunting on your farm that, you know, this spring, you know, this spring, and you found multiple shed antler sets that were 150, 160 inch whitetails. Yeah. What then? That's a, that's a good question, but I have a good answer for it. 
where the deer drop sheds in summer in my area is not where they live during the fall. They there is a huge transition in the in the spring to where or excuse me in in the fall where about September, mid-September when they strip their velvet, a ton of deer disappear, right? So I know that through past you know through past trail camera uh surveys. Now if I didn't know that, I would say if I didn't use trail cameras or or they never they were never invented, I I would say man, there is a deer in this, you know, there, there could be a deer in this area and maybe I'll hold out for him. But a lot of it depends on, so like I'm on a three year run with deer, with bucks, right? So for the past three, uh, the past three seasons, I've killed a buck with my bow and I just come off a year where I shot my biggest buck, right? Not necessarily from an age class, but for from an antler standpoint, which again, like I'm somewhat of a hypocrite because I'm talking about antlers and score, but I don't give a shit about antlers and score at the same time, right? So um, it's, I would say that it, I would, knowing what I've had in the past would dictate what I'm trying to go for in the future. So let's say I didn't have trail camera. I just come off a year uh, where I shot a, you know, my biggest buck and I would probably still hold out for something equal to, or bigger from an age class. And a, you know, maybe I would hold off for a five-year-old or, or if I had uh, uh, encounters with a, a deer previous year or whatever, I would hold out for something you know, a, a big, a quote unquote, bigger buck. And, uh, so I think, but at the same time I would be less picky. So like this year I have trail camera data. I have historical data from trail cameras. Um, this might be a three, but there's three bucks that have my attention so far this year. Now I don't, I have only checked my trail cameras once and I really want to like, so my hit list is only three bucks long this year. And I'm going to hold out probably for one of these three deer, unless, you know, a a random bonus buck kind of comes through the farm at some point. But with all that said, you take the cameras away and now I don't know. It's like, uh, I think I'm going to just shoot something that's a little bit, you know, that's, that's right in front of me. I'm going to, I'm going to be circling through those terrain features and kind of finding the, uh, you know, finding a, a pattern or find a doe group or, you know, find the sign and just set up on it and then just rotate through the farm that way. Uh, and you know, it's something that's kind of, depending on how this year turns out, I might play around with a couple things in, in some future years, like let's try hunting without trail cameras and see what happens. See how my, see how it would actually change. But man, I love checking trail cameras. It's like one of my favorite things to do. I, Hey, I'm right there with you. Um, I would say that not running trail cameras for a year, just to test it out. I would have to imagine that that would actually be quite enjoyable because you just don't have any expectations, yeah. you know? Um, this, I have a question. Real, real quick, quick what, real quick, though. Like, you ahead. just said that it would be awesome. I When I stopped filming my hunts, 
Yeah, it's awesome to see the footage, but at the same time, I was taking in so much. I was taking in way less gear, and I it was like another fifteen minutes of setup that I I don't not fifteen but ten minutes five minutes of setup that I didn't have to worry about anymore. It was really refreshing. Yeah, I could imagine. I film my own hunt, so yeah, it's. I've been debating on throwing in the towel on that or or, or kind of only doing it during the rut, but um. Yeah. Uh, no, real quick, I've got a question. What's your what is the Iowa's tag situation? Do you only get one one archery tag for a buck? Yeah, so yeah, <clears throat> I get my one archery tag. Then I can get a shotgun tag if I want to. One of the first okay. two shotgun tags. <clears throat> and then I can get a or either a shotgun tag or I can get a late season muzzleloader tag. Okay. And <clears throat> that late season muzzleloader tag can also be a primitive weapon so i can use my bow to shoot or to fill that tag okay so if i tag out in november i can go back and try to shoot something late season right right so that's kind of so that's where michigan's tricky too uh you can you get two buck tags and you can fill them both during archery season one in archery one in rifles season both in rifle season doesn't matter um nebraska i have found out is basically the same as that as well as a non-resident you can buy an archery only tag which is good for a buck or a doe and then if you fill that you can buy a general season tag and it's much more expensive but that covers archery rifle and muzzleloader oh so, then so late season you could come back yeah yeah or i mean uh, I'm going to go out there for the rut for like two weeks and I'm not going to hesitate now that I know that for whatever reason, I didn't know that the past couple of years. Um, now that I know that, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be slinging arrows at three and a half year olds right away. I don't even, I'm not going to hold back. I'm sick and not shooting deer, honestly. Yeah. So I'm just going to kind of let her fly. Gotcha. As long as, you know, the opportunities still have to present themselves, but right. Yeah. Okay. So, that's how that's how we would kind of approach uh, the the whole the trail camera situation. Now you, I hunt a little bit of public ground. I'm going to say less than twenty percent of my hunts are on public ground. Uh, I I have a farm closer to my home that I I have permission on a private piece, and it borders public. So it's not like a full public hunt you know what i mean i'm not i'm not parking at a parking lot i'm not i'm uh i'm actually walking through a private piece to get to the public piece uh, because it's there's a really good pinch point but it's kind of surrounded on three sides by private right and i have access to two of those pieces of uh private ground so so i wouldn't say i'm a public land hunter by any, any means but i do hunt on public land does your strategy differ on the public pieces that you hunt versus the private pieces that you hunt? Uh, yeah, it does. Um, explain. Well, I, along with that rain coming, I think it's also supposed to rain Sunday. It's Friday right now that we're recording this. It's supposed to rain on Sunday and I'm going to do, because I've been gone, <clears throat> excuse me, because I've been gone hunting uh, out west, I haven't had an opportunity to do this here. But I'm going to do what is considered like a speed scout mission in the rain. And I'm just going to do a quick loop 
around my public areas and I'm going to just basically look for some of the typical areas that I've found tree stands in the past uh, from other hunters. And I'll just take note of them, drop a waypoint on them on Onyx and then kind of um, figure out exactly how I'll take the information from my trail cameras as well. And I'll, I'll see how all that data kind of correlates and try to figure out, you know, wind direction, how it's going to affect how their wind is going to affect, you know, my hunting. And, and that's, that's kind of how I approach that. Um, I also will try to stay away from the public land on weekends. So, okay. yep. Yeah. And on this public piece that I hunt, I, I have run into hunters every single time that I've been on it, whether uh, it was on a shotgun hunt with me and my wife or if it was on a, uh, uh, a bow hunt with myself or like uh, a couple years ago, my buddy Ryan came into town for two nights and two, two days or two nights or whatever. And uh, we, we uh, hit this piece of public together and it, it was fun, but I approach that farm because there's also other hunters that hunt that farm. And it's a little bit high pressure, right? Mm-hmm. So if I was to take away the the uh, title of private versus public, I think what we're really talking about is pressured versus unpressured, right? Right. The, right. Th- that farm and that public ground have a higher pressure. And depending on what time of year it is, it, I will approach that that farm differently, right? So... I'll be honest, I'm going to be aggressive in the moves that I make on that private farm because I know that as as soon as it gets to that mid to late October into the rut, there's going to be more people hunting that. So I'm going to be aggressive in where I'm setting up like right away. I'm going to be right. I'm going to be I'm going to be approaching that farm similar to how I approach my main farm during the rut. And, uh, just because it's closer to my house and, uh, I, I want to be the guy that's create creating the pressure on that farm and not somebody else. Because once you get into a scenario where you're not the only hunter there, you don't know what these other people are doing. Shit. They could have been there 24 hours before you just tromping all over the farm and you're not necessarily wasting your time, but you don't know, you don't know what's going on. So I want to be that guy who's putting the initial pressure on that farm and catching these deer that are, have not been pressured. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it's still, it's early season. They're not moving around a lot, but what's happening is I'm getting, I'm, I'm in charge not, not another hunter. Right. And I think that's how I, that's how I approach that public piece as well. Uh, I'm, I'm going in, I'm being aggressive. I'm setting up downwind of these bedding areas. I'm getting really close to their bedding area in between bedding and food, hoping that they, they bounce out of that bedding area, come by me in order to get to the food at last light. So again, I'm not hunting any field edges. Well, never, ever really. I am a huge fan of going in and setting up in the timber and uh, I'm seeing less deer, but I'm having more deer within shooting range of me. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, I've, I've <clears throat> the the main farm I like, kind of the only farm ground I hunt is uh, that property out in Nebraska, and I've noticed the same thing. Uh, you get in that timber, and yeah, you just you're more likely to see something in range, especially like a rut cruising buck uh, is going to be in bow range more so in the timber than really out on the field edges. Right. So. Right. All right. So then when I go to my quote unquote main farm, that's an hour away. I there's, there is still pressure on that farm from other hunters. Okay. It's a little bit less and it's typically, it's typically done after the second week of November. So if I hunt, I'm, I'm typically the only hunter on the farm after the second week of the rut, just because the, those guys have a certain amount of vacation that they have to use and they hunt a certain part of the farm, which in the past couple of years, I've, I've went and hunted that area of the farm, uh, but not anything like I used to, right? It's almost like I just kind of let them have that area of the farm and I'm hunting different sections or I'm hunting it early. And, uh, then, you know, once they start hunting, then I kind of back off a little bit, but what? I, I hunt, I hunt that piece different because it's it's a little bit lower pressure and I'm I'm playing it way more calm. I'm doing more observation sits. I'm I'm not jumping right into bedding areas right away. Uh, that farm is more dependent on the time of year, so it's a lower pressure farm, and I know that the deer uh, are going to be there when I get there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, do you know when those other hunters have their week off? Yeah, it's one of the first two weeks of November every year. And it, 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 a lot of it depends on the date it lands. So if, let's say, the, the first week is, let's say, Halloween or October 28th or 9th lands on a Monday, they're not going to hunt that first week. They're going to okay. hunt that, that second or it's it's typically the first full week of November, so then they could be starting like on the third through whatever the third through the tenth or something like that, and then okay or or something like that. But then they also come back for shotgun season or okay. first first season shotgun, and then by that time, you know, there's a little bit more pressure on the farm and the deer split, and then second season it's game over. The farm's dead after second season shotgun. Right. Right. I've uh, I've only hunted Iowa once, and it, we did it mid mid late uh, November. Yeah. And I, I mean, because um, your shotgun season doesn't start till December. Uh, anytime I can ever hunt Iowa, I will definitely be there. Like that, that twelfth to the twenty second, fifteenth to the twenty fifth time frame. Just like it just seems everyone takes their rutcation. Like you said, that first full week in November, and uh, I don't know, man. I just feel like a lot of those big boys get are just cruising so hard to find oh, that yeah. last hot doe. Yeah, man, it was it was incredible last year when we were. We I think we were there from the the eighth to the eighteenth, and like the fourteenth to the eighteenth was just on fire. And just and the farmer out there that we had gotten to know, he was still cutting corn because all your all your crops came out kind of late last year because it was really wet. Yep. And uh, he said that he's never seen so many mature deer on their feet like the last that like 
20th to the 25th time frame. And I think that coincided with the full moon too. Uh, but he said in all his years, and he's got, he's one of those guys that he's almost like a Mark Drury, but nobody knows about him. He doesn't have social media. You know, yeah. he's got a flip phone. He's got 180s and 200s on his wall from back in the day when he used to bow hunt. But, um, oh, wealth of, wealth of information. But, uh, yeah, he said he's never seen that many deer on their mature deer on their feet yeah. during daylight. And that's what my tra- that's what my trail cameras are telling me uh, is that let's say you you have to pick from you you get to pick one week out of the three weeks in November uh, the f- first three I would almost rather everybody wants to blow their load and hunt the first week in November right and what I'm finding out is that that's great that's a great time to hunt if the weather conditions are good but if the weather conditions are bad then I think weather plays a bigger role that first week than they do the second and third week because the second and third week, the does are in heat. They're not almost in heat. They are in heat. And the they don't give a shit about weather anymore, right? They're, right. they're moving right. regardless of the temperature. And so one thing that I've noticed is the big bucks on the second week, they're still in control of the does. Like they're still being able to go out, select a doe and move on. But the, the third week they turn into zombies and all they want to do is just walk and with their nose to the ground and sniff and find that last doe or find the next doe because it's all over in the air by that time. Right. And they're they're That's when they start turning dumb. And that's when, I get a ton of trail camera pictures that uh, this year was a perfect example. I had like four shooter bucks on the farm at one time and I was already tagged out. And this was like the, I want to say the 15th or 16th of November. I had the same thing in Nebraska and, and they are, and they had just got done with their week of gun season Yeah, and the 15th, 16th set. I think the 15th really through like the 25th, it was daylight photos nonstop, mature bucks, bucks I had never even seen before. Yeah, it was, it's crazy the intel you can get. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So with, you know, with all that said, I think that if I'm on a high pressured farm, I'm going to be aggressive early as opposed to, or, you know, I'm just going to be aggressive the entire time as yeah. opposed to, because, you know, I either am going to be in control of the pressure or if the pressure's already on the farm, then I want to be able to flank that pressure or, you know, and being mobile, right? You know, it's, it, you gotta, you gotta, I feel like being mobile is a huge thing and we're going to get to that here in a second. But then on my other farm where there, there's still pressure, but it's a little bit lower, I'm going to hold back and be a little bit more selective on when I am aggressive. Yep. Yep. So, I, I, I agree. Uh, here in Michigan, uh, I have basically 25 days to 25, the first 25 days of October to hunt because on October 25th, uh, I head out of state. So between three properties, I've got plenty of room and options to hunt very aggressively. Like you're talking about, um, hoping that leads to some encounters. Um, and then, yeah, once, once I get out, out of state, we'll definitely, probably do the whole I kind of hunt from the outside in type type deal okay. so all right so the next question that I have here and I think 
all this kind of ties in back to the other two. You know, we've talked about trail cameras. We've talked about pressure. Now I want to talk about access to acres, right? And there's a lot of guys out east who maybe hunt in, uh, let's just say, a suburb, more of a, a suburban setting or only have access to a 40-acre piece, right? So for me, I'm blessed, hashtag blessed, because <laughs> I have access to a lot of ground here in Iowa, right? Knock on door permission. Uh, I got public um, out my back door that I can hunt. So uh, if there's ever uh, a problem with one of the farms, I can also I can always go to another farm and hunt, or I can jump on a piece of, of public next to the house. But... How would you, how many acres as a whole do you have access to? In Michigan? Yeah, let's just let's keep it local right now. Okay. Yep. Uh the sorry about that. Uh the private farm I hunt is a hundred acres. Uh I have another public chunk that is fifty that is it's a unique it's a unique fifty acres of and it's almost a a quote unquote public land. It's where my work is and it's, uh, it's township property. So, uh, it's classified as public, but it's gated, like not high fence, but like to get in, to drive in here or to walk in here, you'd have to jump a, a, a a four foot tall barbed wire fence. And it says, you know, no trespassing wastewater plant. So like it's, it's kind of, it's kind of private, but then there's public, uh, not far from it that I know a ton of people on. It, it's really unique. I got a highway on one side. I got a 58 chunk. Then I have a uh, an unhuntable 90 acres uh, on the other side. That's school property. Um, and then on on the other side of that, at, it's it's public. So, but at the same time, anyone can come hunt here. So yeah, okay. Uh, so and then I have another chunk by my house that's probably I think 100 acres, maybe 200. Gotcha. Okay. I I haven't looked. All right. So I want to talk about, let's say you only have access to 40 acres. That is all you have access to throughout the entire year of hunting, right? You live, let's say you live in a higher population or you just haven't taken the time to go knock on doors or you, whether it's public or private, that's yet to be determined. Let's, let's just say for now it's uh it's a, it's a private piece or I say, screw it. Let's just, let's stay with that pressured versus unpressured. Right. So okay. let's say you have a, a piece of, it's only 40 acres. So that's all you have access to the entire year. How does your strategy change compared to what you currently have? Ooh, well, uh, can I, are, have trail cameras been invented yet? Uh, yes, but, but here's, here's the kicker. We're going to talk about both, right? We're going to okay. talk about how you would approach it when, whether you do or you don't have trail cameras. Okay. So, um, can it be farm or timber or mix or, uh, let's just, let's for all intensive purposes, let's say it's a, a block of timber with a house on it. It's an acreage. Let's say it's an acreage. Okay. Um, and it is a it's it's next to an egg it has some kind of egg on it or or close to it okay okay all right um my strategy for okay probably first of all i'd like to scout 
in the springtime, whether you find a shed or not, who cares? But find the bedding areas, right? It's got to be some sort of bedding area. Also, I'm going to look. I like uh, I like a low point in terrain. And it might only have to be five feet lower than it's the surrounding. But anywhere you can get like a low a low trough almost, you know, it doesn't have to be a big ditch or anything like that, but just like, you know, a depression in the landscape, it seems like deer move through that, uh, a lot more. Um, uh, they, I think they feel safer moving through like low depressions opposed to being up on, on higher stuff. I just, it's just how I've, you know, just observing deer movement. They just always seem to move through the low spots when you're talking, you know, flatter ground. Um, so I'm kind of, and then I'm looking at, where there's going to be some of the leading runs uh, going out to say ag or or a food source. That's the other thing. I'm ch- I'm going to look for I'm going to look for oak trees. Um, see if there's any any mast uh, that's going to drop. Um, that's kind of like the scouting. Uh, if I'm running trail cameras, I don't know. You can do your minerals or you can put them up on mock scrapes or, or, or travel corridors, whatever it might be, any sort of pinch point you can identify. Uh, that's kind of how I'm going to scout it. And as far as hunting it, I'm going to get, like I said, I'll probably do the outside in type method. Um, I would probably try to keep, uh, I get some preset stands, maybe, you know, each corner, each side, something like that. And I would just try to identify where maybe I could sit early season with, uh, my wind safely, you know, you're blowing into a, a quote unquote dead area, you know, a, a place that I want my wind blowing somewhere. I'm confident that deer probably aren't going to travel, whatever that might be. Right. And, and then I'm just going to, if I, you know, I probably wouldn't ha- I mean, it's pressured, it's pressured ground, probably not going to hammer it out too hard right away, uh, in October, probably just kind of hang back and I would wait more until, uh, those last few days of October to get in there, try to find some natural scrapes, uh, last few days of October, maybe starting even around the 25th of October where I'm at, um, and kind of hunt around those. I've seen a lot of good activity around natural scrapes that have just popped up and then, um, probably, yeah, just, Make your micro moves as you need to. Forty acres can honestly be a little bit bigger than what I guess you would actually think it is. Right, or um, smaller depending on what the breakdown is of, you know, right. timber versus CRP or grass or farmland <clears throat> or whatever it is. But yeah, it would be a very methodical hunt. It'd be very, very calculated and very safe, and it would probably end up biting me in the ass because it seems like the more aggressive you are, the more opportunities you have. But, uh, with something that small and pressured, that's, I don't know, it's just the way I would approach it. I wouldn't want to just go in there right away. First week of October and, you know, let every deer know that, Hey, I'm here. Right. So, right. And I think if I had, if I had only 40 acres to hunt, and let's say, regardless of what the trail cameras are telling me, I would still be very selective on how – I feel like on a bigger piece of ground, you can, you can make mistakes because you have access to – you have the ability to change your access routes and go hunt. Right. If you bump a deer, you can still hunt that same deer but maybe on a different part of the farm or the area. On this, if you bump a deer, man, he may not come back for weeks. You know, 
So my, my, my thought is, let's say I did run trail cameras. I'm collecting that data as when these deer are coming through, and then it would just be a surgical strike, basically, uh, on, on when the wind direction is right. At the same time, you take away the trail cameras, you have no choice at that point to, to play the same game. You can only hunt that farm on certain winds, or you have to live and die by access to those stand locations because if you screw up, you're more likely to screw up everything for the whole season. So you have to abide by those low winds or those access routes and the wind direction. And I probably wouldn't do much early season hunting unless there was, let's say, like a ag field food source to where uh, a deer was coming in. I wouldn't be jumping into any timber or I wouldn't be doing anything until the time of the year is right. Or I maybe saw a buck in there that I had never seen before. And then I would jump in to try to, to try to get that opportunity at him. But I think on a smaller piece of uh, property, the higher risk you take, the more chance you have of screwing it up for the entire year. So I would probably just sit back and wait until that November timeframe to when there's more movement and the deer are a little bit dumber, you know, for the most part, and just hunt less early and more during prime time. Yeah, I could see that. I, I would say if there's, if, there's, if I'm not, if I don't have a trail camera, you know, if they're not there, I don't even know about them. I would probably just focus more on identifying bedding and food and hunting in between and just making sure my wind is not in that travel corridor, wherever right. that might be. That would, right. let's see, I mean, that's, it's kind of, I mean, it depends on what, on what you want to If you're looking for a mature buck, I mean, just the rut might be a little bit better to find something on, uh, on their feet during daylight. But yeah, if you just want to, if you just want to hunt and see deer and, and not get busted, I think, yeah, identifying bed defeating patterns, um, and just hanging back yeah. and then you can move your way in as needed. And, and like you said earlier, uh, on a, on a piece like that, I would do a ton of post season scouting. And that's as soon as the, uh, as soon as the season is over, I'm in there and I'll walk every foot of that 40 acres to locate where the sign is at and locate where the trails are at. Because yeah. it's only, it's not like a thousand acres to where you can, you have to, you can be, really mobile. I would also have every single, I would have four or five or six or however many stands in that pre hung before the season even started like a month or two before the season even started. That way you're even less of an impact on that, uh, property. Right. And I would just play it real calm and, uh, just be very picky about when I hunt and how I hunt. Yeah, and uh, yeah, one thing I haven't I haven't mentioned is uh, on, on my end is yeah I would I would pay I would give a lot of attention to access routes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. All right. So now let's flip the script and let's say how does your you know and, and I want to talk about this sucks because there with a with a choose your own adventure book especially when it comes to hunting there's so many different 
opportunities or possibilities, right? It could be a thousand acres down in Georgia of all standing pines or 40 acres up in the Northeast, you know, in a suburb or 200 acre farm in Iowa. That's a mix of CRP ag and, you know, like hardwoods. It's just, there's so many things that we could talk about, right? But let's just say now we're flipping the script on the size and now we're working with, let's say a big farm like Kansas or Iowa or, you know, and really anywhere, but it's a thousand acres or it's uh, 500 to a thousand acres. Does your strategy change at all? Oh, big time. That's exactly what I had to do last year in Iowa. I got permission on a 500 acre farm and didn't even know where to begin. That's, that's a big, that's a lot of land. Yeah. Um, so I, I did not kill a buck off that, but I got, I was damn close multiple times. Um, basically we knocked on doors and then we went back in end of, end of July or middle of August. And we put cameras up and we hung tree stands in observation areas. <clears throat> there were observation areas that they were field edges. And we knew that that was just somewhere that when we get there, we can jump in a tree stand and just, we're going to get there during the rut in November and we can just glass. You could see forever and you could see what's going on because, uh, where we were hunting was kind of hilly terrain. Um, so yeah, we, and the whole time we knew we were just going to have to be super mobile. So we set these tree stands up where they could overlook fields, but you could also look down into some draws. Um, and then from there, we kind of just kept moving, inching closer and closer, figuring out how they were moving with the wind. The, the trail cameras didn't do us a lot of good because we set those up on field edges just for inventory purposes. Um, so we didn't really have a good idea of how the deer were using or, or moving through that farm. You, you kind of get a good idea, but, um, so yeah, the corn was standing, uh, I think the beans were still in too. So that kind of made it a little bit more, I think it kind of actually hurt us a little bit. Um, and then there's, there was cattle in that farm too. Um, they were still all, they were all kind of kept out of the area we were hunting luckily. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, it was, it was a matter of just sit and observe, sit and observe and then, and then start moving. Yeah. And as we moved in closer and closer and you watch the weather and stuff like that, um, yeah, I had multiple, uh, encounters with four or five year old mature bucks, uh, within bow range, just no clear shots. Yeah. So, so for me, let's see uh, small farm. I'm being much more precise in my approach to it. Bigger farm. If I could, I'd hunt every single day. Right. Just because I love hunting and a bigger farm allows you to do that. Right. I mean, early season, there's going to be a place to potentially, depending on your deer numbers, to go in and try to shoot a doe or just, you know, observe or just shit hunt to hunt. Right. I mean, I'm going to go out and, and have some fun. Now, my approach would be much more mobile, like I said, and I would be probably setting up uh and and this is this is my experience that i that i'm used to because i do have access to you know a lot of 
continuous acres on certain part in certain parts of the state. And regardless of whether it's Iowa or, you know, Maine or Kansas or Texas or Florida or whatever, I would still probably hunt the same way just because of the amount of land that I have access to. And, um, you know, observation sits and, uh, and this is in, in the perfect world right now, now that my time is, is valuable with, you know, the family and work and all that stuff. I, I, I'm not going to be able to hunt as much as I, I would like to, but I'd be much more mobile. I would be much more, uh, you know, apt to go in head first into an area, do a run and gun right into a bedding area and, and just see if I bump a deer on an aggressive move, I know that where the terrain lies you know, because I've hunted this property before, I'm going to go in and I'm going to be able to catch them on a different area or, you know, potentially catch them on a different area or move down the ridge or up the ridge or to bedding area 1A or 1B or 2, you know, whatever. And yeah. bump to the next ridge or bump to the next uh, uh, river bottom and check, you know, just, you know, start that rotation that I talked about earlier. And it just allows allows you to get a better idea of what is going on. Now, I will I will say this. In the past, having access to so much ground, it's it can almost be a hindrance on your strategy because for me, there are days where I second guess myself to death. Where I'm just like, okay, well I got a northwest wind today. I can hunt here. Well shit, I can also hunt here. Oh man! Right. Well, that one year I, I had a, a good encounter on a northwest wind this time of year over here. Well, okay. Well, there's you know, well there's this this could happen. Well, well this could happen. And then you're sitting there, you're just going in your head, and you're almost probably you're probably talking yourself out of the best initial move, right? When on forty acres, you know exactly what you need to do, and you can only do that. Right. right? So uh, there's there's some. There's some things, but at the same time, there's not one person out there that's like, oh, yeah, Dan, must be tough hunting a thousand acres. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, no one's, yeah. no one says that, right? So, right. um, I, I would just be able to be much more aggressive on larger tracts of land. And whether I have trail camera data or not, I know that for the most part, I would also know who is on that property and how much you know, how much they're hunting. That's the kind of the same with the, the private or versus public ground or pressured versus un, unpressured. Obviously, if you're hunting a larger piece of highly pressured ground, you are able to make more moves to get away from that pressure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? As opposed to, let's say a, a very low pressure farm. <laughs> And this is the dream for everybody to hunt a very large acreage, low pressure farm. Everybody wants to, to do that. And that's kind of, that's kind of a dream scenario for most. Right. Well, I don't know if you put the work in, yeah. you could find it. Right. So it's all achievable. Yeah. I kind of, I kind of approached it from just, you know, the out of state mindset. I did not think about, you know, that's how, that's just how you know, brainwashed, I, not brainwashed, but tunnel vision I have is when you tell me 500, 500 acre farm, 
I automatically go to, well, I'm only going to be able to hunt that one week out of the year because that's going to have to be a travel destination right, because right, right. here in Michigan, we just don't, you know, you're lucky if you can find an 80 or maybe, yeah, some people have a 200 acre farm, but of course I'm in Northern Michigan where there's a lot of, uh, public land and national forest. So we've got a lot of timber and we've got a lot of places that there actually is not a lot of ag and there's not a lot of, uh, you know, quality, uh, just like natural nutrition. Right. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of big timber hunting. Right. And I, and I think we're going to be able to apply what we've already talked about to the, this next kind of, uh, hypothetical. And that is, that is this out of state hunt. You, you give me the same farm, Let's say I you have a 200 acres access. Uh, you have access to 200 acres in Michigan. You have the ex, let's just say it's the exact same farm in a different state that you're actually having to travel to, but you only get one week to do it. How do you think there's a strategy change there at all? Mm, yeah, there's. I mean you're just naturally going to be able to hunt it differently because, well, I don't know. It's twofold. So if I have a 200 acre farm here in Michigan that I live close by, I can hunt it whenever I want. Right. Right. Uh, I can hunt on weekends. I can pop out of work early or go into work late and hunt it, you know, mornings and evenings and stuff like that, depending on weather. Um, so I can hunt it a lot more strategically from the big, long, like outlook of, you know, I've got six weeks, our, our gun season starts November 15th. So I've got six weeks to kind of get this done. Um, not that, you know, I mean, you can still hunt again back uh, archery hunt again in December and you can get lucky and deer kind of calm back down. But November 15th and November 30th, it's gun season here in Michigan. And it's, it's the orange army. Now, if I've got one week, out of state to hunt 200 acres it completely changes not only do i only have one week to get this done but now i'm i'm also just more engaged on a daily basis because i'm hunting sun up to sun down i'm assuming i'm assuming you're going to take a week during the rut to go hunt a 200 acre farm out of state you're not going to choose you know the first week of october right um so now you're you're so more engaged because you're there all day, every day for seven days, and now you're starting to make your micro moves, you can still do that uh, at a farm that you hunt in Michigan or, or, or at home, whatever you want to call it. Um, but you can just be uh, much less intrusive. Um, I don't know. I, I would say that 200 acres at, at home, I'd be less aggressive, more methodical, and uh, 200 acres out of state with seven days, just more aggressive and moving in on them. You know, you see a buck, you see a buck move through an area, uh, one time and you're making a move, you know, midday or something like that to get over to that area and hoping to catch them in the next 24 hours. Yeah. Uh, whereas in, in, at home, you can kind of sit back, wait for that, um, that strike, like you've kind of talked and, uh, and just be more patient. Right. Right. You don't have, you don't have an internal clock ticking really when you're, when you're at home. Right. 
But I think, and I think that's, you know, I'm, it's not necessarily whitetail themed, but I'm getting ready to go on a spot and stock hunt out in uh, South Dakota for mule deer. And that's on a, that's going to be on a large track, very large track of public ground. But regardless of the size of the farm, I would, and I would be, I would just be much more aggressive if I only had a limited time to do anything. Right. Yeah. Um, I would probably take that day to a day or two to, to scout, to do some observation sits, find, find the trails, find the, the sign that's talking to me saying, hunt this area, hunt this area, and then go in and just dive bomb it. And, you know, obviously dive bomb it in a smart and tactical way, you know, and just not like, Oh shit, the wind doesn't matter. You know, no one, no one wants to do that, but go in and be aggressive and make, and make those moves. And I think what, I think what we've, we've done now in, in all this talking is just proven the fact that you have to be able to approach any property based off the scenario that you're giving, whether it's large or small, whether it's pressured versus non-pressured, whether it's, uh, a, a, you know, whether you have data versus you don't have data, right? And I think what what we've, we've proven here is hunting is just as much thought as it is action. Yes. Right? So in order to... to I guess in, in order to accurately, or I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, uh, approach a piece of property, any piece of property in any state, you have to be able to, to walk into it or look at it on a map first and say, okay, here's how I need to approach it and then make any decisions or changes to your strategy based off of the, the data that you're receiving from the from the the hunting you know while you're hunting it right maybe you need to back out maybe you need to be more aggressive and i think the only way to do that is the data that you're collecting whether that is trail camera data or whether that's firsthand data from you hunting you know in a tree yeah and i would say with the data that you're gathering two things one record it write it down I, i don't know even if I mean, part of me, the way I record stuff is, you know, you do a, an Instagram update or something like that. But I, I video all my hunts so I can kind of go back through everything. But um, record the data somehow. And then also ask why. Ask why uh, you had this sighting, you know, with this deer. Why, why was he moving this direction or that direction? Was he coming from bedding? Was he headed to food? What was he doing? And then you're going to build a database for years to come because I think a lot of deer kind of use a lot of property the same way generally. Right. So. Right. And I'll tell you what, um, I used to work in manufacturing and in lean manufacturing and in in, uh, certain types of manufacturing, if there is a defect in a product or if uh, someone gets injured, on the workplace or let's say there is a uh, a process that is not performing accurately they go back and they do something called a five y right and that is 
let's say a buck comes through a certain area. Why did that buck come through a certain area? Well, it's because it's the breeding season and he's, it was downwind of a bedding area. Okay. Well, why is there a bedding area there? Well, the, and this can go any direction, right? But why is there a bedding area that, well, it's a low spot in the terrain, right? Or it's at the end of a draw or it's in some real thick, nasty cover. And then what you, what you're doing is you're just going backwards and asking these questions and it allows you to think on why the deer are moving or why the deer are there or why that terrain feature is so good. You know, even up to the points where like, uh, I just got busted by a, a deer. Why did I get busted? Well, my wind was blowing down. Well, where did this deer come from? He came on the terrain feature that was suitable to him that I didn't know about or whatever. So long story short, you need to move your tree stand over to that terrain feature so that you're not getting busted downwind anymore. Right. And asking these questions backwards like that is basically do, uh, doing an analysis of your own setup allows you to learn from mistakes or successes that you've had in the past. Right. So, and this and this is definitely, I mean, you, not everyone has to do that. It, it depends on what you want out of your hunt. If you're absolutely, trying, absolutely, absolutely, you, know, you don't have no, nobody has to overthink it. This isn't the golden rule of how you should hunt. Right. I, I don't have a track record to back up my way of thinking. I'm still I'm still gathering information from people like you and and all sorts of other podcasts and still trying to put it all together to consistently kill mature deer. Um, so, so don't take what I say as real, but it's just good general whitetail talk and to think, let's, think about yeah, it, right? Because exactly, I don't want a listener of this podcast to do exactly what I say. I don't think, let's say Mark Drury says something or some big name guy who's killed a thousand, like Dan Infault, you know, this, these guys are proven deer killers, right? And they each have their different way of doing it, but you're not Dan Infault, and you're not Mark Drury, right? So, therefore, you should not hunt like them. Right. You are not hunting the same farms. You're, you don't have access to the same resources that they have. You hunt different piece of public. You hunt a different piece of private. You have access to food plots. You don't have access to food plots. Like, all these different scenarios that are not the same as what these people are telling you. Yes, you may be able to take away some of the principles, but you should apply the principles only, not the exact strategy to the properties that you have access to. Right. So, uh, you know, this is a, a different, a long way of saying uh, you got to do what you got to do and don't worry about anybody else. Yep. And on top of that, I've, I've noticed that um, I pay attention more to uh, people that are, are consistently harvesting mature deer, but I, I'll pay more attention or I'll read books from people that hunt, you know, Michigan or if like the author is from the Michigan or New York or Pennsylvania or something like that, because that's going to be more up my alley over here. Um, obviously hunting now that hunting the Midwest more kind of gives me the opportunity to, to take into consideration what people like you or Drury or Bill Winky or someone like that is saying because those regions and those deer hunt differently than a region like where I'm at, where it's more pressure and less ag. Yeah, so, absolutely. so consider that, consider yep. that when you're, when you're, when the, consider your source and where they're from and what land they hunt. And if it compares to the land you hunt. 
That's a fact, Jack. That's a fact. Well, when are you going to let me come your uh, come hunt your thousand acres of unpressured Michigan land? I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that. I don't have that. Uh, 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 uh. Well, hey, uh, Bob, man, really appreciate your time today. Hopefully, uh, the listeners of this podcast were able to just whether you take away, you know, anything out of this podcast or not, just be open to, to, to thinking about strategy in, in different ways, different shapes. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) It's, I just, I mean, it's, it's almost October 1st. It's, uh, it's deer season and, uh, just got too much on the brain about bucks. It just got to get it out in a podcast, I guess. There you go. There you go. All right, man. Good luck the rest of the season. Hey, same to you. I know that was a really long podcast, so if you're listening, if you're still listening at this point, thanks for sticking it out. Hopefully this got your brain working about how you're going to approach your uh, hunting land this year, whether you're on uh, private or public, or you got a lot of acres, or you just got a couple acres. Um, Good luck to absolutely everybody. I'm jacked for this upcoming season, man. This past weekend, I went and set some stands up. And I uh, moved some trail cameras around, and I'm uh, pretty excited about what's going to happen in this upcoming season. So uh, uh, follow along. I hope I lay down a gigantic buck who's really, really old. Uh, I got trail camera pictures of a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old buck this year, and uh, I would probably shoot him in a heartbeat. Now, thank you, thank you again for tuning in. Huge shout-out to Vortex, Lone Wolf, Ripcord, Wasp, Ozonics, Prime, and again, Vortex. Please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast so it comes full circle. Uh, Also, be sure you are subscribed and you're getting notifications or whatever whenever a Nine Finger Chronicles podcast is launched as well as the Sportsman's Nation Whitetail feed, which the Nine Finger Chronicles is on on that feed as well. So check it out. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, It's that time of year where we are uh, getting out into the woods, right? Make sure you're wearing your damn safety harness, right? I can't say that enough. So good luck. And if you laid it something down or you got a really cool story you want to share, you need to share it with me on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And we'll talk to you later.